Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for June 2010. I'm Jennifer Griffiths, Managing Editor with ACS Publications. In the June issue of ACS Chemical Biology, we feature six research articles in one letter. The letter and article from Lynn Regan's group describes a split GFP reassembly assay to screen protein libraries for modules with a desired binding specificity. In other research, scientists in Patrick Iyer's lab describe creation of a panel of drug-resistant mutants of the kinase Aurora A to study the efficacy of a class of anti-cancer compounds. Researchers led by Lydia Finney present a new method to identify and quantify metal protein adducts in complex samples. And Jason Guestwicki and co-workers present a new molecule that targets the heat shot protein HSP70, an experiments undertaken to identify the protein-molecule interactions. We will be talking with Guestwicki and Ayers later in the program. In addition, Maddie Fridkin and colleagues report a new strategy for designing site-activated chelators targeting both acetylcholine esterase and monoamine oxidase. And finally, Joseph Knoll and colleagues describe the crystal structure of isopentanyl phosphate kinase, an important archaeal enzyme involved in isoprenoid metabolism. Now, we'd like to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. In Ask the Expert, we give you the opportunity to pose questions directly to top scientists in the field. Our current expert is Dr. Sheng Ding, Associate Professor at the Scripps Research Institute. He will be fielding your questions about the use of chemical and functional genomic tools to study stem cell biology and regeneration. Submit your questions for him today at www.acschemicalbiology.org. To learn more about the authors of the papers in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet nine young scientists, Aitzabar Kortaharina, Lydia Finney, Meredith Jackerel, Tina Liu, Kimberly Mendez, Dominic Sloan, and Michael Trickick. Read this section to get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We're joined today by Jason Guestwicki at the Life Sciences Institute at the University of Michigan. Hi, Jason. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. So to start, why are heat shock proteins an important area of study? So heat shock proteins are um, part of the cellular protein quality control system. So they're one of the main systems that's in place in the cell to maintain protein homeostasis. And so I got interested in studying heat shock proteins because there's very few small molecules and very few chemical biologists really working in the area of heat shock proteins. Your work describes the mechanism of action of a compound 115-7C that targets the heat shock protein HSP70. How do you go about dissecting these interactions? Yeah, that's a pretty interesting story and sort of a circuitous story, but we first found 1157C in a chemical screen, and it had this very unusual activity that it would stimulate this protein that you mentioned, heat shock protein 70. And it's unusual to find molecules that stimulate the function of a protein, so we immediately got interested in understanding its mechanism of action. And so we relied really heavily on NMR in a collaboration with Eric Zudervig's lab, here at University of Michigan to understand the mechanism. So we used NMR to figure out where 1157C binds and then went on to elucidate the mechanism that's laid out in the manuscript. But really the story started in trying to identify molecules in a chemical screen and finding unusual and unexpected things, which is always fun in science. How did you get interested in this area of study? 
Yeah, I've always been interested in trying to use drug-like small molecules to probe biology. It's been a long time interest of mine. And these types of probes are really interesting to me. And I think what they allow you to do is both discern mechanism and really understand how proteins work, like heat check protein 70 that we work on. But at the same time, you're trying to understand mechanisms. Using small molecule probes sometimes allows you to have opportunities for advancing compounds into drug discovery. And I like that dual way of thinking of doing mechanistic work and chemical biology, and at the same time, keeping an eye open for opportunities in drug discovery. So finally, what are the next steps in this project? Yeah, one of the things we're very excited about now is that a molecule related to the ones we described in the manuscript, not quite the same, but related, are going to be tested in animal models of Alzheimer's disease. And preliminary data is very strong. And I think later on this year or next year, we're going to take one of these compounds into early clinical trials in humans. And I'm really excited to see how these molecules act in more complex animal systems and models of disease. Okay, Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks again. We continue to define chem-bioglossary terms on the air. This month's keyword is epigenetics. Epigenetics is the study of inherited changes in phenotype or gene expression caused by mechanisms other than changes in the underlying DNA sequences. We are now joined by Patrick Ayers of the YCR Institute for Cancer Studies at the University of Sheffield in the UK. Hi, Patrick. Oh, hi there, Jennifer. How are you? Good. Thank you. So what is the role of aurora kinases in vivo, and why is it important to find ways to inhibit these enzymes? The aurora kinases are really, in humans, are really three very closely related kinases. We've termed aurora A, aurora B, and aurora C. And they exhibit very high homology in the catalytic domain, and this is the sort of functional part of the protein kinases, the bit that phosphorylates serine and threonine groups on acceptor proteins. And really, aurora kinases were first discovered in, the, in model organisms like Drosophila and yeast in, in the late 80s and early 90s. And we really discovered, I say we, not myself, but it became apparent that human homologs of these enzymes existed in the last 10 years or so. And their function has really become apparent through a variety of biological approaches. So the real critical role of aurora kinases in vivo that we know from these functional studies is that they are most highly expressed and most active during mitosis. And this is the brief but, of course, highly critical stage of the cell cycle when the chromosomes, which contain all the genetic material, are faithfully segregated to two new daughter cells. And, as I say, this is a highly regulated process, and, of course, aurora kinases are themselves highly regulated. And we and others have found that aurora A and aurora B become activated during mitosis, so clearly they must do something important then. And it turns out that aurora A controls a process called centrosome maturation and centrosome separation. And what the centrosome is is the center of the microtubule organizing center in, in the human cell. And aurora A is able to control this microtubule organizing center and really help set up the mitotic spindle. So aurora A is important for setting up the spindle on which the chromosomes are then separated. And aurora is also very interesting that it's an oncogene, and there's good evidence that it's an oncogene. So it can constitutively transform cells and help make them cancerous. And actually, aurora also interfaces strongly with tumor suppressors and oncogenes such as MYC and tumor suppressors such as P53. So aurora A has a very interesting role in cell division at the mitotic level. 
And Aurora B, which, as I say, is closely related, is also involved in a similar process, but because it's localised in a different place, it actually monitors and corrects the accuracy of this chromosome segregation and also has a very important role later on in mitosis as the cells separate during cytokinesis. So in a nutshell, Aurora kinase is a central regulator of mitosis, and really what their job is to do is to keep the genetic imbalances that are sometimes seen in cancer cells in daughter cells to a minimum in, in normal cells. Now, the question of why is it important to inhibit these enzymes is really put simply, if you can inhibit an aurora kinase, you can really make mitosis an abnormal process. And if mitosis is abnormal, the typical response in a cell will be to induce programmed cell death. Therefore, by inhibiting aurora kinases, the prediction would be that you'd induce massive mitotic errors and cell death in proliferating cells. And, of course, this is where the link with cancer comes in. And clearly in animal studies, aurora kinase inhibitors show really nice effects on the killing rapidly dividing cells and, and in particular tumor cells. Now, it also became clear in the 90s that aurora kinase is highly overexpressed in tumor samples and not all but a high proportion. And this suggests that this kind of might mark them out for targeting of drugs because, you know, if we could find specific examples of aurora inhibitors, we might be able to specifically target certain tumors. Now, specificity is a big issue in the mid to late 90s when aurora kinases really became, you know, a major area of, of research focus because kinase inhibitors always have one problem, that's specificity. And really until the real classic example of the Gleevec and in the late 90s, it wasn't clear that you could get specificity with protein kinase inhibitors. So really, the reason the, the auroras are exciting and the reason inhibitors are important is because they might be anti-proliferatives, they might be useful as therapeutics, but actually they're also exciting to me because we can use them to really find out the roles of aurora kinases and probe their biology. You say in your paper that aurora kinases A and B exhibit very high catalytic domain identity. Could you explain what that means and what the implications are for inhibition? Absolutely. So we believe actually that the aurora A and aurora B kinases have a common ancestor. And we know this, for example, if we look in the yeasts, which are a very important eukaryotic model organism, they only have one aurora kinase, which actually looks most similar to aurora B. That's the kinase, you remember, that regulates cytokinesis and uh, chromosome microtubule interactions in human cells. But actually, the really important issue is that in three dimensions, we think that Aurora A and B probably share more features than are unique between them, especially in the ATP binding site. So really, in three dimensions, the ATP binding site, which is the target of most inhibitors, is pretty much identical. There's probably three amino acid differences between Aurora A and Aurora B. So when we say very high catalytic domain identity, what we're saying is designing a drug that can differentiate between the two is a bit of a challenge. Although it should be said that it's one that the field, and especially the medicinal chemists in the field, have really attacked vigorously with many successes. And one of the first successes that came to our attention was the disclosure in 2007 of a compound called MLN8054, which was uh, synthesized by Millennium Pharmaceuticals. And interestingly, this compound seems to be able to discriminate between Aurora A and Aurora B, at least in vitro, and if titrated carefully in cells. And, of course, this raises a very important question, firstly, about whether we should be targeting either Aurora A or Aurora B, or maybe both for an antiproliferative drug, or perhaps even a fourth option, which might be a drug that can simultaneously inhibit Aurora kinases and other enzymes critical for, say, cancer cell survival. So perhaps we'll only really know 
when issues of drug resistance are really understood completely, which targets are the best or the most critical for success in a particular cancer or maybe even in a particular patient. The implications for inhibition are that when you have an inhibitor that has an in vitro parameter, say it's IC50, it's KI, or whatever you're measuring, how do you really know when you expose the same compound to a cell, which of course has 520 or so different protein kinases in it, and many more enzymes and proteins that bind ATP, how do you really know that the compound might causing a phenotype, for example, cell death in a cancer cell population, is actually caused by what we might call an on-target effect, i.e. with an Aurora inhibitor, is the effect caused through Aurora A inhibition, Aurora B inhibition, both, neither? And the answer is we're never really sure. And this is where we believe drug resistance strategies can pay off because we can look for the loss of phenotypes associated when specific drug resistance mutations are created, in our case artificially, in a cell in, say, Aurora A or Aurora B. And the key point is this. If a resistance mutation abolishes a phenotype, we've actually validated our drug target. Taking this to an extreme, this is what happens, unfortunately, in patients, for example, leukemia patients who are resistant to drugs like Gleevec. Now, Gleevec is very much a wonder drug. It's revolutionized therapy for leukemia. But in a significant proportion of patients, the drug either doesn't work to start with or it stops working, and this is because of drug-resistant mutations. So in the future, we think it will also be important to develop Aurora inhibitors that work, that don't really rely on this similarity in the ATP binding site. Perhaps there'll be a chance of getting real specificity for Aurora A or Aurora B or something else by blocking interactions of Aurora A with things like its activating protein. And an example of that would be TPX2. And those aren't driven by ATP. So an ATP competitive mechanism won't be as important. How did you get interested in this area of study? I did my graduate work with Philip Cohen in Dundee in the late 90s. And it really was an exciting time to be around protein kinase inhibitors because this was around the time that Kavan Shokat, who's been a real driving force in the field of chemical biology and specifically in the protein kinase inhibitors, and ourselves really worked out in a series of papers that one amino acid, the so-called gatekeeper of kinases, that lies in a region in a kinase active site that isn't usually used by ATP, can allow small molecules to bind with different affinities. So what it does is it kind of dictates whether inhibitors can work. And we worked at the time on a, a group of kinases called the P38 MAP kinases, and we worked out how specificity was conferred to a class of anti-inflammatory drugs. And this is really rather simple. It's kind of intuitive, but actually it's the size of the amino acid in the ATP binding site which allows the drug to bind. So in most kinases, it can't bind because there's a large amino acid there. So steric hindrance stops the compound binding. And what we really went on to do in my graduate studies was to prove that this was also true in cells. So we were able to show that the effects of a compound in a cell, so the phenotypes we were interested in, disappeared when we overexpressed a drug-resistant mutant. Now, since those days in sort of the late 90s, these type techniques have often been superseded by proteomic approaches, where we really have a very good understanding of which inhibitors bind to which kinases. But actually, that still doesn't tell you which, if any, of those targets are causing the effect. So this is where we really get towards the clinic now because it's very important to know what your target that causes your phenotype is inside a cell. The cell is much more complicated than the in vitro systems we usually use to screen. And really, as going back to the Gleevec example, the mutations in BCR-ABLE, which drive chronic myeloid leukemia, but which give resistance to the drug Gleevec, they can be overcome by designing drugs that work in a different mechanism. And that's what we've really been interested with the Aurora kinases as well. So finally, what are the next steps in this project? 
the work that we present in this paper, we think, shows that really the central critical target of compounds like this Millennium 8054 and its next generation compound 8237, we believe that in the cell populations where we've looked, it's targeting Aurora A to kill cells, rather than Aurora B, actually. And this is useful information in itself. It's not particularly surprising, but it really validates Aurora A as an anti-proliferative target in its own right. But I think the most interesting aspect of the work is actually our demonstration that it's actually very subtle changes in the amino acid architecture in the Aurora ATP binding site, and perhaps those that might exist amongst different populations around the world, or those that might be inducible in cells exposed to drugs, really can bring about major changes in the ability of a drug to kill a cancer cell. And of course, this raises the issue of what might be the best way to eliminate tumors containing mutant kinases, perhaps by targeting Aurora B, because we know that targeting Aurora B also kills cells, or Aurora A and Aurora B simultaneously, because mutations are less likely to arise in two targets at once. And really what we hope is that should resistance occur to Aurora kinases, that we might have kind of got a step ahead of evolution or a step ahead of cancer cell evolution by looking at this mechanism. And of course, it's also important for drug companies and for people who are interested in mechanism to know how their compounds work. And giving us tools of for being able to study drug resistance in, in cell populations is very important. And hopefully in the future we'll take this into animal models. Okay, great. Thanks, Patrick, for joining us today. Okay, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much. That's it for this month's show. Join us next month for more ACS chemical biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.